All right, so nothing to kick off this next episode like a fiery title, right? Yeah, Reaganomics, student debt relief, and racism are all linked. Little bold there, Misasha. I love it. <laughs> I mean, it's not like we shy away from controversy or big feelings on this podcast. I mean, exhibit A, our name. You know, but if you just heard what you, Sarah, said and are like, wow, this sounds like a lot of economics, this is definitely not your typical economics podcast, nor is it going to be so dry because I also sat through beginning economics classes and wanted to peel my eyes, you know, eyeballs out of my face and pull my ears off. I think it was the only class I got like a a C in. I hated it. So terrible. Anyway, it's not going to be so dry that you want to do those same things or turn this off five minutes into listening. You know, what I think is really important about this episode is it is crucial for you to listen to if you want to understand how Reaganomics and the policies that were made now 40 years ago are still directly affecting us in very measurable ways to this day, because it gives you a sense of just how important it is when we think about who represents us, whose interests do they have in mind, and who are they going to stand up for in the end? Yeah, because hello, midterms are coming up. We want to really understand this arc of history and what role we can play today in where we might be 40 years from now. Yep. So buckle up. Economics may never have been so interesting. And in saying that, I probably just oversold this. No, no, no. I've looked at your notes. You did not. (laughs) I am actually really excited because I learned a ton already and I'm excited to share all of this. So let's jump in. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. And we are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. Okay, so if you're tuning into this episode without listening to the previous episode, episode 185, which was about how political parties have completely flipped in value since they were founded, in order for some of this to make sense, you should go back and listen to that first. However, you know, hey, if you want to just jump right into the Reagan era, you do you. It's great. Okay, a quick recap, though, so that we get our bearings. American history, including politics and economics, is largely cyclical. So as our fave Heather Cox Richardson put it, during the Depression and World War II, Americans of all parties had come to believe that the government had a role to play in regulating the economy. And that was through providing also a basic social safety net and promoting infrastructure. But reactionary businessmen hated regulations and the taxes that leveled the playing field between employers and workers. So they called for a return to the pro-business government of the 1920s, but that really didn't get any traction until the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education decision. If you remember that, that was about desegregation of schools. When the Supreme Court, under the former Republican, remember, party switched, Governor of California Earl Warren unanimously declared racial segregation unconstitutional. That decision and others that promoted civil rights enabled opponents of the New Deal government, so the people who, you know, New Deal was about government really helping and gaining, you know, power and momentum. That helped the opponents of that type of government to attract supporters by insisting that the country's post-war government was simply redistributing tax dollars from hardworking white men to people of color. Yep. So cue all the eye rolls. But also, when have we heard that rhetoric recently? Honestly. Right? Anyway. 
Yeah. So this argument clearly wasn't new. It's not new now. It wasn't even new then. In fact, it echoed the political language of the Reconstruction years, thus also the post-Civil War years, when white Southerners, and remember, those were Democrats at the time, insisted that federal efforts to enable former slaves to participate in the economy on terms equal to white men were simply just a redistribution of wealth. Because, you know, everything that was required to achieve that equality would cost tax dollars. And after the Civil War, most people with property that would be taxed, right, were white. So those white people insisted that this was, heavy air quotes, socialism. Spoiler alert, it is not socialism. But yes, I agree, it does sound scary to certain groups, especially people who have a lot of land and money, when you say it like that. So going back to Heather Cox Richardson, she notes, to oppose the socialism that they insisted was taking over the eastern part of the United States, which, I mean, I think that's referring to the government, right, the federal government, D.C., opponents of Black people having rights looked to the American West. They called themselves movement conservatives. And they celebrated the cowboy who, in their inaccurate vision, was a hardworking white man who wanted nothing of the government but to be left alone to work out his own future. In this myth, the cowboys lived in a male-dominated world where women were either wives and mothers or sexual playthings, and any person of color was either a savage or a subordinate. And again, does this sound familiar? Uh... (laughs) I'm like shaking my head. You all can't hear it. And I love this article. If you guys are interested, let me know. Because when when I was putting together that speech, Misasha, for last week, you sent me that article because I was referencing the Cowboys. And I just really want to emphasize that this air quote, hardworking man in the American West absolutely did not do it alone. Right. One dude did not run a whole ranch by themselves. No, they definitely had Well, to start family help, right? Badass women and children who would work the land, who would be there. Like you need a team of people to run like land. Plus, they got tons of subsidies from the U.S. government who help protect cattle, who help build a railroad so they can transport goods, et cetera. Right. So it absolutely was a myth that that hardworking cowboy did it by themselves. But as for your sound familiar with nowadays, yes, absolutely got it. We're back in that cycle again here in the earliest, you know, 21st century where white landowning men want all the money and power. So I know that was really blunt. We said it. But where and how does Reagan come into the picture, if you can position this for us? All right. So, I mean, Reagan is that literal cowboy. I mean, he at least he played one in the movies, like actually played. It's true. If we've got young right. people listening, you know that a former president of the United States used to be an actor before mm-hmm. he got elected, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, actor, <laughs> reality show, actor. Anyway, well, yeah. so he even had a ranch. This is going back to Reagan, right? And he was the governor of California, which is definitely part of that whole Western myth. So he could definitely and deliberately did use this glorified cowboy image along with all of the racism and sexism that comes with it when he ran on this platform of basically saving individuals from an overreaching government. But, you know, I think it's important to in order to understand Reagan's true persona and not just the myth surrounding him that some love to indulge in, because there are a lot of stories that really glorify Reagan. It's important to first understand his campaign for president, right? And we're rewinding all the way back to the 1980s, right? Or actually before that. So for example, Sarah, do you know where he decided to announce his candidacy for president? 
You know the answer. I do not know. (laughs) But I think you're going to tell me. I am. And he kicked off his run as the 1980 Republican presidential nominee with an appearance at the Neshoba, Mississippi County Fair, where he professed his commitment to states' rights. And I think we know what that's code for, but more on that in a second. So on its face, there might not be anything wrong with, you know, going to a county fair and saying you're for states' rights. Also, as many proponents of states' rights today claim states' rights are a good thing. Hello, the Dobbs Mm -hmm. decision. But let's remember where he was. Neshoba County was infamous for the 1964 Freedom Summer murders of civil rights activists James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner. And appeals to states' rights have long been used to justify southern states' refusal to enact civil rights measures. So... By holding himself out there as a states' rights candidate near the site of one of the nation's most famous hate crimes, Reagan offered voters a racism that was both obvious and, at the same time, unspoken. So, first of all, I keep thinking back to the parallel. I feel like it was Juneteenth when Trump did something in Oklahoma, right? I was going to, yes. And then like they were like, oh, right, maybe that's not a great idea. But I feel like when you signal like this, people were probably drawing their conclusions about what kind of candidate he was going to be, right? Like that location had to maybe tip people off, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the funny thing, or, you know, it's not really funny, is that people already knew this was who he was based on his past actions. And again, I mean, does that sound familiar? He'd been this, quote, cowboy for a very long time. For example, he opposed, and this is when he was, you know, in politics, not obviously as a presidential candidate, he opposed the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1964 and also sought to limit the Voting Rights Act, claiming that these laws were an infringement on states' rights. My eyeballs are about to fall out of my face. Like, how on earth did I not actually know that? Like, I had the privilege of growing up in one of the best public school districts in the country at the time. So how did I not know that Reagan opposed, say, humanity? and our fellow citizens' human rights and, like, equality? I mean, I grew up in the state of California, and I don't think I learned that. And, you know, Sarah, that we talk about how the education system, right, isn't really teaching history evenly or accurately throughout the country or years, right? And seriously, it wasn't just those two policies and two, you know, federal-level actions. When he was running for governor of California in 1966, Reagan criticized the Fair Housing Act, which made it illegal to sell or rent housing based on color. And when he was criticizing it, he said, quote, if an individual wants to discriminate against Negroes or others in selling or renting his house, it is his right to do so. Yeah, we'll stop, right? And I think what I did not put in the notes for this episode, but there several years ago, there were these really bombshell tapes that were released of discussions between Reagan and Nixon when Nixon was president. And Reagan says some super racist things about African officials in that point. I believe he used monkeys as the term in which he referred to them. So, I mean, this guy is a super racist, right? Also, he was an outspoken critic of affirmative action condemning racial quotas as a form of reverse racism. No, folks, there is no such thing as reverse racism. That's a separate conversation. Contact us if you want to know more. Right. And even though his Republican predecessor, right, so in the order of presidency was Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, right, Richard Nixon is often credited for affirmative actions 
whole creation and institutionalization in this country. Okay. So I picked my eyeballs and my jaw off the floor about, like, I didn't actually know how deeply racist President Reagan was. And he definitely, it sounds like, felt a certain way about who should be in control of the money and power, which I would gather means white men like him. But I feel like when we hear about Reagan, like what stands out for me in the education I did receive about him was this idea of Reaganomics or his economic policies, right? Like, I remember part of what he promised was that cutting taxes and regulations would expand the economy, right? Like wealthy people who I remember is like the supply side of the economy, the people who own the companies and could pay people, if they regained control of their capital, they would then use their wealth to invest in their businesses and provide more jobs and everybody would make more money. Like that's what I remember about Reagan was this Reaganomics, right? Yeah. In order to write this episode, I searched how to explain Reaganomics to kids. And so I got these four main ideas of Reaganomics broken down into really sort of easily understandable tenets. And here they are. One, Reaganomics was about reducing the growth of government spending. Two, it was about reducing the federal income tax and capital gains tax. Three, it was about reducing government regulation. And four, it was about tightening the money supply overall in order to reduce inflation. Okay, I like that. I mean, I get a picture of it from those four points. And that is what, like, it was called trickle-down economic theory, like free market economics, I guess, depends on how you feel about Reagan and, and how you want to position it. But it was that idea that everyone is going to make more money, and that's a capitalist dream, right? But clearly, fast forward, and we have huge inequality of wealth in our country, extremely stratified when it comes to wealth. And so it doesn't sound like it worked out for everyone the way that they envisioned it would. Yeah. I mean, it never worked, right? So Reagan was advocating for this return to this free enterprise, trickle-down economic principles that had been in favor like before the Great Depression, right? So this is, again, going back to that cycle. And he enacted regressive policies that really favored the wealthy and high-income Americans, segments of the population that, as we've noted, were disproportionately white. So during the Reagan years, for example, there were radical cuts in the marginal tax rates and a lowering of the top personal tax bracket from 70% to 28% in the course of seven years. I mean, that is a gigantic change. Totally. So Reagan's hugely influential anti-tax whole platform, right, paved the way to change the American economy to one of growing economic inequality. That wasn't it, though, because this was also linked with steep increases in military spending. Right. So when you've got less taxes being paid by the super wealthy, plus an uptick in military spending, you've got to cut somewhere. Right. And so these actions helped to erase funds for social programs focused on advancing opportunity for the disenfranchised. Right. Because if you think about it, money moved upward. Right. The wealthy are holding on to more money dramatically. And voters began to think, not shockingly, that the cutting of taxes in particular was going too far. So to keep control of the government, because as we've seen in this cycle, right, people get upset about wealthy people holding on to money. They start to ask for change. But then the people who have the money are like, nah, we like it this way. So to keep control of the government movement conservatives, and this was, you know, in this whole Reagan time period, 
ramped up their celebration of the individualistic white American man, insisting that America was sliding into socialism even as they cut more and more domestic programs. And along with that, they were also insisting that those people of color and women who wanted the government to address inequities in the country simply wanted, heavy air quotes, free stuff. And let's just go through some examples. For example, during those years, which is, you know, the 1980s, there were drastic cuts in government funding for school lunches, unemployment insurance, childcare, subsidized housing, aid to families with dependent children, the AFDC, and the Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, which trained workers and provided them with public sector jobs. All of those things I feel like we are now addressing currently, right? So during his first few years in office, Reagan cut social benefit spending by $20 billion a year. And that's in 1980s money, let's not forget. And in doing that, he really went after the support of social conservatives and evangelicals, also known sometimes as the religious right, because he knew what they were afraid of, which is communism. And he was able to get them on board with his whole theory by convincing them that he was going to be able to reverse this dangerous trend towards socialism and communism and, you know, de-emphasizing religion, right? Combination of church and state has always been a big thing for these movement conservatives after Reagan. And I'm going to asterisk this right here, because here's where the Republican Party and the evangelicals really got linked. And we're going to talk more about that next week. So don't miss that episode. So to sort of sum up this whole section, you know, those social safety nets that we are always talking about on this show, Reagan pretty much blew those up in favor of pushing money to the already rich people, arguing that if they create jobs and support the economy, more money will be had by all. And again, I'm gonna sound like a broken record, but does this sound familiar, like very recently familiar? Uh, I can't even believe it. It is frustrating how right you are that we need to understand history because we continue to repeat it. And so here we are, you've got rich people paying a lot less in taxes, poorer people who used to be dependent on social safety nets now without them, And yet, in theory, right, according to Reagan's grand trickle-down economic theory, wouldn't the rich be helping the poor with all of their tax savings? Yeah, and I love that you asked that question because I think that's the biggest argument, right, in this whole theory. And yes, like, theoretically, that should be the case. But it's really only in theory, because under Reaganomics, as we were talking about, the ultra-rich had their taxes cut sharply, right? Those percentage changes resulted in their taxes being cut by about half. So a millionaire who was paying 700,000 in taxes in the 1970s saw her taxes cut to 350,000 in the 1980s. And again, you think about inflation, you think about what that real value of money is, that is a significant cut, right? So now this millionaire has a $350,000 windfall. What was she going to do with it? You know, some spent it on conspicuous consumption, as I think we've seen in, you know, the 80s, or if we weren't alive in that time period, the TV shows that tell us about the 80s. But many decided to fund think tanks and hire economists to support their ideology, while others used the windfall to influence politicians and shape laws. And so the tax cuts became a vicious circle in which wealth generated more wealth and still more influence. You know, but while select white Americans were getting richer, the converse was happening, too. Because remember, like both Nixon and Barry Goldwater, according to Ian Haney Lopez, the Chief Justice Earl Warren Professor of Law at UC Berkeley, Reagan also stoked racism 
to really, you know, garner voters and get support. But racism alone wasn't his full and actual agenda. You know, and Haney Lopez has actually created an online course about the ways in which politicians have used racism to sell an anti-government, anti-working class agenda. So according to Haney Lopez, his actual and his being Reagan's actual agenda is turning people towards the idea that government ought to get out of the way of corporations and the wealthy and that the wealthy are the real engines of social progress. And yes, racism was one of the ways to do that, which helps, especially if you are a racist yourself, right? Yet the facts really are clear. With these radical changes to economic policy, Black Americans would see record levels of unemployment, poverty, increases in incarceration, and steep slowing in socioeconomic gains during the Reagan era and continuing on to this day. In fact, you know, it's that cycle all over again. Going back to Reconstruction, right? The 1880s and the following decades were when racial inequality was reestablished following the Civil War and Reconstruction. The 1980s represented a time of regression in the United States as it relates to racial equity, like it did 100 years before then. And now in the 2020s, over 40 years later, the United States has really yet to, to, you know, go back to that activist role of the government that's really necessary, according to civil rights activists, to create that greater equality, right, and equity. Since the Reagan era, even in strong economic times, and we've had some of those since that time, economic inequality for all Americans grew. And for Black Americans in particular, the racial economic divide remains wide and in some ways has gotten way deeper. I mean, I think it just continues to show me that I, in order for us to get back there, we really do need those social safety nets because this cycle keeps making the rich people richer and the poor people poorer. And then if you include systemic racism in it, right, the people at the top are more often than not white and the people at the bottom are more often than not, not white, right? Mm -hmm. So how are we looking like you probably have some stats you just mentioned, you know, we're 40 years later after Reaganomics, like. Where are we right now here in 2022? Yeah, so I'm glad that you asked that because in 2020, a paper came out that looked at the lasting effects of policies just like Reaganomics, because Reaganomics was not also unique to, or the concepts, the economic concepts behind it were not unique to the United States. So this paper that was put out by two individuals from the London School of Economics and King's College London examined 18 developed countries that, you know, from Australia to the United States over a 50 year period from 1965 to 2015. So the study compared countries that passed tax cuts in a specific year, such as the U.S. in 1982, when President Ronald Reagan slashed taxes on the wealthy. And so it looked at countries where there were those great tax cuts with those that didn't and then examined their economic outcomes. So what's interesting to note is that per capita GDP, gross domestic product, and unemployment rates were nearly identical after five years in countries that slashed taxes on the rich and in those that didn't. But the analysis discovered one major change. The incomes of the rich grew much faster in countries where tax rates were lowered. I don't think that's a big shocker. But instead of trickling down to the middle class, tax cuts for the rich may not accomplish much more than help the rich keep more of their riches and exacerbate income inequality. So the exact opposite of what trickle down, the trickle down theory was supposed to, you know, promote. So according to the co-author of this study, Julian Lindbergh, who is the one at King's College London, he says, based on our research, we would argue that the economic rationale for keeping taxes on the rich low is weak. In fact, if we look back into history, the period with the highest taxes on the rich, which was the post-war period, was also a period with high economic growth and low unemployment. All right. So we know 
what sort of tax rates benefit everyone versus just a small select group of people. Let's call them the 1%, okay? So however, when Trump came to power in 2016, right, when he won that election, he loosely followed a bunch of Reagan policies and including, you know, this whole sort of episode arc has a lot of trivia questions, <laughs> and trivia answers, including, did you know that Make America Great Again was actually one of Reagan's reelection slogans in 1984. For real? Yeah, really interesting, right? But Trump's economic policies were largely similar to Reaganomics. It wasn't just the slogan as well. Fundamentally, it was tax cuts plus deregulation plus increased spending. So under Trump's presidency, for the first time in a century, the 400 richest American families paid lower taxes in 2018 than people in the middle class. And if you are sitting there thinking Trump is a man of the people, I think you should re-listen to about 20 seconds back and listen to it again. That is shocking. And if that doesn't make you angry, this might. The problem is that we now know this just makes the wealth gap bigger. And in fact, these policies and everything that comes after it have to be unwound by several presidents down the road. For example, while Reagan believed, as we know, that his policies would increase growth so much that public debt would actually decline despite tax cuts and more spending, George Bush Sr. called this voodoo economics. And ultimately, it was Bill Clinton who tackled the debt burden generated by Reagan. Remember, Reagan's first term was in 1980. Bill Clinton didn't take over as president till 1992. Right. So who do you think it will be cleaning up Trump's economic policy mess? Right. right. Oh, this I mean, it really just sounds terrible because, you know, so many voters from what I can get from following social media and that sort of stuff, just see what's happening here and now. And they don't really think about the long term implications of policies that presidents implement. But you were talking earlier about the disparity in wealth between white Americans and black Americans. And we've seen this debate now, for example, over issues like student loan debt forgiveness where we've seen white Americans argue that this is just another handout or that it's unfair for people who've already paid off their loans. And are, to those Republicans who opposed it yet received millions of dollars in forgiveness during the pandemic, right? Like eye roll, hello, hypocrite. People live, live in glass houses. But anyway, that handout comment or maybe hinting that people should hold themselves up by their bootstraps. I'm air quoting here, right? That sounds again really reminiscent of that whole cowboy Reagan era when he was cutting social safety nets, right? Yeah, I mean, because, and let's like go right back to it, systemic racism, you know, combined with all of those economic policies. Not only do black Americans make disproportionately less money than their fellow white Americans, they have one sixth the wealth of white Americans on an average per capita basis through inheritance, through generational wealth, through not being able to partake of all of the social safety nets and benefits that the GI Bill offered white returning veterans. I meant asterisking here. We have a whole episode on the, those mm -hmm. conversations. So look in the show notes. We'll remember which one it was and we'll put it in there. Yes. So it is no surprise then that Black families borrow at higher rates than their non-Black counterparts and that they owe more. According to the Brookings Institute, differences in interest accrual and graduate school borrowing lead to black graduates holding nearly $53,000 in student loan debt four years after graduation, almost twice as much as their white counterparts. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that only offering $10,000 of relief will benefit white people more than black people. Because remember, you've got twice as much student loan debt if you're black than if you're white. 
right? And what I'm going to say next is, you know, really important because that white debt level is a lot lower to begin with. And nor does it take a rocket scientist to understand how wealth impacts student loan debt, right? People with more wealth will need to borrow less. And if they do borrow, they do it with a cushion of security. They will not fall through the cracks and are far less likely to be ravaged by, you know, what's going to happen with the job market and economy more broadly and predatory lending, right? I think that's a really important thing to note. So you're also looking at the interest rate of how, you know, what that, you know, loan is for you. And that is also very different. So, you know, the trickle down theory that Reagan so loved so much, it didn't trickle down to underrepresented minorities and the playing field still isn't fair. So we can't act like it is. And, you know, going back to that GI Bill, right, if you think about two veterans, right, one white veteran and one black veteran, one white veteran gets the benefits of the GI Bill. So that veteran gets their, you know, education paid for debt-free, right? They get the opportunity to buy a house. They get the opportunity to start saving money because they've got their college degree. They've got their, you know, their schooling paid for and they can start saving. Black veteran, right? Not able to take advantage of the GI Bill, not being even able to go to certain schools in the first place, not getting, you know, their loans forgiven, not being able to buy a house in a period sometimes, not being able to buy a house in a good neighborhood, not being able to save money. You starting to see like a huge disparity from that point alone. And when you're thinking about their children or their grandchildren and student debt, that disparity just exponentially magnifies, right? So, I think it is really, really important to think about that when we think about how economic policies do not affect everyone equally because we don't have the same starting point. Such a good point. And I'm really glad you made that. And I think, you know, as part of this episode title, we talk about student debt relief and how racism are all linked. So I want to just ask this question because, you know, this wealth disparity holds even when it's about debt forgiveness, because even just borrowing money is linked into what you just talked about, that generational wealth and systemic racism and the rates. I mean, we, we t- continue to see headlines to this day where either predatory lending is happening or home valuations are different, that sort of stuff. So let's talk about racism. How else did that play into Reaganomics? And how is that playing out even today? Okay, so I mean, what? how much time do you have? Just kidding. <laughs> you know, we'll hit some of the high level points because I think we've established that Reagan was a racist. And so that you can't forget that framework when you're thinking about his economic policies. So let's start with the welfare queen trope, right? Which I think we have probably all heard, or maybe not, but if not, then you should really be listening here. And that was a trope that Reagan first rolled out when he was campaigning against Jimmy Carter in 1976. He lost that election, but he won the next one. And as Michelle Alexander in one of our podcast's favorite books, The New Jim Crow, states, one of Reagan's favorite and most often repeated anecdotes was the story of a Chicago, quote, welfare queen with, quote, 80 names, 30 addresses, 12 social security cards whose tax-free income alone is over $150,000. Okay, spoiler alert, there was a real welfare queen, but those facts aren't true. The real welfare queen was much closer to today's tender swindler or inventing Anna than anything else, right? This is a person who has a history of fraud at huge levels of the system. And if you want to know more, just search for the real welfare queen. And I promise the internet is full of her true story and several books as well. So despite the fact that the story was made up by Reagan, it didn't really matter to his supporters. 
You know, they weren't looking for like hard facts here, but they were looking for Reagan to be a champion who could placate their fears and justify their bigotry. Um, <laughs> totally familiar, anybody? Hello. Right. Okay, so why was this problematic then? I mean, you probably have your own ideas, but Michelle Alexander really explains the dog whistle meaning, which is another phrase for really coded racism, right, of Reagan's welfare queen. The term welfare queen became a not so subtle code for quote, lazy, greedy, black ghetto mother. So automatically you have a race associated with this woman. The food stamp program, which was another part of this whole welfare queen trope, was in turn a vehicle to quote, let some fellow ahead of you buy a T-bone steak while you were standing in the checkout line with your package of hamburger. And that's how Reagan used racism to convince people to vote against social safety nets and be okay with the concept that they were going away. Because who are they benefiting, according to him? Not the individual rugged cowboy white Americans who are pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. No way. And there was heavy sarcasm there. It, those programs would help, according to Reagan, they would be solely focused on helping black people, first and foremost, and not just any black people, these sort of, quote, lazy, greedy black ghetto mothers, right? And that was not going to be okay especially for Reagan supporters who were not on board with this at all. I mean, okay, so the welfare queen was made up and racist to its core and basically was used as a way to justify getting rid of these social services and social safety nets so more money could go to the rich. But I also very much remember being in sixth grade. I have the photo of the D.A.R.E. program. Oh and gosh. like, remember, right? <laughs> we were yeah. all in school and, and this war on drugs. Like there yeah. was, I have these photos. So he was also big on that. But I think, I mean, based on what we know from the new Jim Crow, right? Mm -hmm. There's also a racist slant to that. Yeah. And as we know from reading the new Jim Crow, this deserves its own episode, right? But let's consider how Reagan's war on drugs was sold to us in the 80s, right, versus how it's seen now. So today, it's widely seen as a great error, one that destroyed families and cities and inflicted generations of damage, including economic one, right? But at the time, it was sold to everyone, and especially everyone white, as a safety measure for our nation. And again, according to Michelle Alexander, the war on drugs was based on this racial agenda. In October of 1982, President Reagan officially announced his administration's war on drugs. At the time he declared this new war, Less than 2% of the American public viewed drugs as the most important issue facing the nation. But this fact was no deterrent to Reagan, for the drug war from the outset had little to do with public concern about drugs and much to do with public concern about race. By waging a war on drug users and dealers, Reagan made good on his promise to crack down on the racially defined others right? Who were the undeserving. Mm. And I think that narrative goes straight from welfare queen to the war on drugs, mm -hmm. right? So who got incarcerated? Disproportionately black people and black men to be specific, which further destroyed any real possibility for building generational wealth during this time period. You know, it further pushed already poor communities into deeper poverty and still let the rich get richer. So do we see these same dog whistle politics today? Yes, we do. But also, let's think about why do we see it? Well, so remember when earlier when I was talking about those millionaires who took their you know tax savings and funded politicians and think tanks to make sure that this racist ideology propagated by Reagan holds? Hateful rhetoric tends towards escalation, as the current Republican Party knows all too well. 
right? According to Haney Lopez, again, racial demagoguery is a monster that the Republican Party uses to win elections, but can't itself control. And that's a tricky part, right? And so generation after generation of Republican officials lose to the more extreme racial demagogue. Donald Trump looks very different than Ronald Reagan. But on another level, Donald Trump is a consequence of Reagan. And I'm going to take this one step further. The 2022 Republican Party is also a direct consequence of Reagan, economically, politically, and in who they fundamentally care about. Mm. It reminds me of that meme that we talked about in the prior episode about Mm. Democrats being Republicans and that sort of stuff. So here's my final question, because I'm fired up and annoyed if I'm being honest, about like how this plays through. So what can we do about this? How can we break this cycle, especially as we head into the midterms? Yeah, I think, and this is something that we talk about a lot, right? I think we need to go back to asking why. And that may be hard for those of us who are alive in the 1980s, who were indoctrinated into these policies, right? Or for those of us who were born after the 1980s, who have lived with the effect of these policies and heard blame for what happened in Reaganomics being put on others, or who have thought that it was, quote, always this way. Your least favorite phrase, right? Right. It's true. But I mean, I just said everyone who was born in the alive during the 1980s or born past the 1980s. So in effect, this may be hard for everyone, right? But again, as we talk about, you start with educating yourself, right? The New Jim Crow, the book that we just referenced in this episode, is a great place to start, or The Sum of Us, another one of our favorite books, or even by searching for some of these terms on the internet. And as I learned while researching this episode, you're going to get all sides of the ar- this argument when you do, right? So read all of them. But don't stop there. Take a moment to really, really, really think about the importance of looking out for one another. The idea that rising tide lifts all books and the reality that giving more money to rich people does not mean that we're helping to close the wealth gap in this country. And, you know, also, you really need to start looking around your community and your society to see how critical it is, this juncture that we're at right now, right, to start making an active change. So get involved in your communities because these policies that we talked about, the ones that removed social safety nets, the ones that promoted and sanctioned racism, the ones that allowed people at the top to get richer, have been entrenched in American politics and in American economic theory for decades now. So run for local office or support candidates who think like you if running for local office isn't your thing, right? Get involved in your school board, in your city council, and in statewide measures. Read those voter statements and vote for the people who have everyone's best interest in mind. Make sure everyone you know who can vote is registered to vote. And if you can, volunteer to be a poll monitor or a voter hotline operator. They'll train you on that last one. And you can do it from your home to make sure that everyone's voices are heard in these upcoming elections. And finally, if you learned something from this episode today, talk about what you've learned with your family and with your friends. Because this, that talking about it, that action, this is what makes you an anti-racist right? Learning and then doing something about it. Because fundamentally, silence is complicity, especially when it comes to our societal structures and who we are trying to help. So let's get loud together. Misasha, we talked a lot about the book club that we have here at the Dear White Women podcast. Want to use this opportunity to invite those of you who are interested in joining us for real in-person slash virtual conversations. We want to announce the launch of our band book club. And so we have kicked that off. You can visit our Patreon on our website to learn more, uh, dearwhitewomen.com. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah 
and me, Sasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list. <laughs>